invite you now to take out your Bibles and turn to John chapter 2. John 2, verses 1 through 12. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it had come from, though the servants knew who had, who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. A sense of reading of God's holy and inspired word. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the privilege of being called by your name, the privilege of coming to worship you, Lord, where you have said that you are present with us when we are gathered in your name. Father, we pray now that you would send your spirit to do what only you can to open up our ears, eyes, hearts, and our minds. Lord, may it be your truth that is spoken and nothing else. May your word accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. Lord, conform us now more to the image of Christ. May we come to understand and see you better. May we see your glory through the preached word, and may you be honored in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we come back again to our series in John, and we pick up here with the wedding in Cana. Now just to recap, uh, John so far has introduced us to Jesus as the eternal Logos, as we just sang, uh, word of the Father, uh, who then became man, now in flesh appearing, uh, took on a human nature and entered into his own creation. We have as well been introduced to John the Baptist, who gave his testimony that Jesus was the man whom he was sent to proclaim. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the one whom John the Baptist said he was not worthy to even untie his sandals. Now, due to John's testimony, some of his own disciples left him to follow Jesus. Jesus then went and called others. And so we begin chapter 2 with Jesus already having established his own following. Now, let's read together from chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So we pick up here on the third day. So following the sequence of events, uh, this would be the third day after the last event that was described, which was the calling of Nathaniel. Now, one interesting thing about this section 
is that nowhere else in his gospel does John give us a detailed sequence of, ev- uh, of days like he does here. So if we were to back up and look at what he has presented to us, uh, beginning with the day that the messengers are sent to John the Baptist, the second day then finds John announcing Jesus as the Lamb of God, the third day brings two disciples to the place where Jesus was staying, and then they stayed for the rest of that day, which means that the bringing of Simon Peter is on the fourth day, the calling of Nathaniel is on the fifth day, and as D.A. Carson writes, Uh, The third day after that, uh, by inclusive reckoning, the way that the Jews would have counted their days, would mean two days later, placing the miracle of Jesus turning water into wine on the seventh day. Now, why might that be significant? Well, D.A. Carson writes that John has already drawn attention to creation. Remember, we saw that the Word was the one through whom all things were made. We've already been brought to creation. And what we find through the rest of John's gospel is that the good news which he proclaims in the gospel reflects a new creation. And so this week of days, this period of seven days climaxing in the miracle at Cana may provide an echo of the creation week. That means the miracle itself takes place on the seventh day, the Sabbath. Um, Christ came to inaugurate a new creation. Now, before we move on, let us simply notice the fact that one of the first things Jesus does uh, in his earthly ministry is to attend a wedding. Now, J.C. Ryle writes that those who would seek to lightly esteem marriage, to hold marriage in low regard, they do not have the mind of Christ. He says, he who beautified and adorned the the estate of matrimony by his presence and the first miracle that he wrought in Cana of Galilee is one who is always of one mind. Marriage, says the Holy Spirit by Paul, is honorable in all. And this must be the desire of every Christian couple to have Christ's blessing upon their marriage. We must remember that marriage itself is a picture of the gospel. Paul calls the union of husband and wife a profound mystery, one which refers to Christ and the church. And so we see that husbands are commanded to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And wives are commanded to submit to their husbands in everything as the church submits to Christ. Now that doesn't sit well with many people in our day. But we must note that those who would look with disdain, right, those who would dislike uh, these seemingly old-fashioned and outdated gender roles, what these people need to recognize is what's actually at stake in this. Husbands are to lead self-sacrificially in marriage, for this is how they represent Christ. This is the type of bridegroom that he is. And he is therefore the type that all husbands must imitate. 
Wives are to submit to their husbands, for this is how they represent the church. And so we see that we are not simply free to find some arrangement that we think works for us. Rather, we see that we are given unique parts to play, unique roles to carry out. It is truly a drama of redemption. It puts the gospel on display as we uniquely image Christ and his church. Those who reject the biblical roles for husbands and wives do not image Christ and the church as they ought to. And a marriage that rejects God's intentions is not a marriage that should expect the blessing of Christ upon it. But like this marriage in Cana, which sought Jesus' blessing by having him in attendance, we should all seek Christ's blessing upon our marriages. And for this, we must seek to follow what he has required in his word. We must pray and ask him for his blessing. And we must seek to live out the gospel, husbands leading like Christ, willing to die for his bridegroom, wives submitting to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. We must apply grace to one another, apply the gospel to this relationship so that we would forgive one another as we have been forgiven, that we may apply the grace we have received to others. My favorite marriage counseling verse, Ephesians 4, 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Let us seek the blessing of Christ in our marriages by living them out as he would have us. Let's continue on. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, first, we have a fairly large question to address, and that is this. What is the beverage in question in this wedding? Well, the Greek word here is oinos and is very consistently translated in all major translations as wine. Now, this is important for us to address, as there have been some pastors who have claimed that what Jesus made was not actually wine, but was simply grape juice, uh, the best and purest grape juice. Now, D.A. Carson writes that this idea that, God, that Jesus made grape juice instead of wine, quote, is intrinsically silly as applied to countries whose agricultural tradition is so committed to viticulture, that is the production of grapes for the making of wine. Carson continues, Besides, in verse 10, the head steward expects that at this point in the celebration, some of the guests would have had too much to drink. Uh, the verb methisco uh, does not refer to consuming too much liquid, but rather to inebriation, close quote. Uh, we see these same words picked up in Ephesians 5.18, where Paul writes, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Do not get drunk, methusko, on wine. A very similar word to that used in verse 10 of John chapter 2. I do not get drunk, methusko, on wine, 
oinos, for in this is debauchery, or this leads to debauchery. So we find here that the same word used for wine, which leads to drunkenness if overindulged, is the word used to describe the wine in John chapter 2. And so we see the text, the cultural and historical context. We'll see more of uh, Israel's commitment to uh, vineyards and winemaking later. Uh, The text, the cultural and historical context all make it quite clear that this was real wine that Jesus made, wine which had the potential to intoxicate if someone were to overindulge. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Mary comes and tells Jesus that they have run out of wine. Now it's possible and is uh, considered by by many commentators uh, that since both Jesus and his mother were at this wedding, that it was quite possibly the wedding of a close relative, uh, which would also explain uh, why Mary might have been interested in whether or not they had enough supplies. Perhaps she had some kind of catering responsibility here. And so in an honor-shame culture, to run out of supplies could be a dreadful embarrassment. And so Jesus responds to his mother respectfully. Uh, This is not an insulting phrase, the way he responds to her with the word woman. Uh, But he he responds respectfully, asking, what does this have to do with me? Why why bring me into this? Uh, My hour, he adds, has not yet come. My time has not yet come. Why bring me into this? And so we ask, what does Jesus mean when he says, my time has not yet come, or my hour has not yet come? It's interesting here. Jesus shows us that he knows something about his own future that has not yet been revealed to the reader or to those who were around Jesus at the time. We see foreshadowing here. Something big is on the horizon, and and Jesus gives us a glimpse. Now, we, of course, in hindsight, know through the rest of John that Jesus' time or hour referred to his death on the cross and the exaltation bound up with it. Just to give a few examples, John 7 verse 30 says that the Jews were seeking to arrest him, which would have led to his crucifixion, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Chapter 8 verse 20, very similar, but no one arrested him for his hour had not yet come. And then we actually see a turning point in John chapter 12, where Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now Jesus knows that if he reveals who he really is, this would start a series of events which in the providence of God will culminate in his arrest and crucifixion. And so Jesus therefore gives his mother a very deep answer, uh, one that may have gone well beyond anything that she was even expecting. Notice if you look in verse 11, John tells us that this miracle was the first of the signs that Jesus performed. So we see Jesus had not done any miracles before this point. And so when Mary comes to ask Jesus for help, uh, getting more wine, it's actually not at all clear from the text that she was expecting him to perform a miracle. She may have simply been asking for help from her firstborn son, whom she knew from experience 
to be both reliable and resourceful. You can imagine what kind of a son uh, God the Son would have been. Uh, Mary may have been very used to relying on him in this way. In any case, Mary is undeterred by Jesus' resistance and turns to the servants and tells them, do whatever he tells you. Verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. Whatever he tells you, do it. Now it's interesting, we see in a few places in the Gospels where Jesus will give people odd instructions. You know, we know that Jesus can heal without a word, as he does for the centurion's servant. Um, and in other places, however, in other places we see people uh, where Jesus makes people take a few steps for themselves. Right, we'll see this later in John. Rather than instantly heal the blind man in John chapter 9, which he could have done, instead, Jesus spat on the ground, made his spit into some mud, scooped up the mud, smeared it on the man's eyes, and then told that man to go and to wash in the pool of Siloam. And when he did, his vision was restored. Now, imagine these servants here. They know that they were supposed to get wine. Uh, they likely do not know much about who Jesus is. And you can imagine that the instruction that Jesus gave likely sounded odd to them. Fill up these six jars with water? Why? And these are not small jars either. Notice uh, what the text tells us. The e ESV translates these measurements for us and tells us these jars held 20 to 30 gallons each. Now, 30 gallons of water would weigh around 250 pounds. And this, of course, is before indoor plumbing. This is going to be a bit of a job to fill these six 30-gallon jars up with water. And so we would understand if the servants began wondering to themselves, why are we doing this? Like, don't we need wine? How is filling jars up with water going to help us get wine? And I think we can face that same kind of questioning in our lives. To our natural fallen way of thinking and reasoning, some or perhaps much of what Jesus commands us to do doesn't sound to us like wisdom. In fact, sometimes it sounds and feels completely upside down. Just consider some of Jesus' teachings. It's better to give than to receive. Lose your life for Christ's sake in order to find it. Love even your enemy now, we very naturally want to get, not give. We tend to want to cling to our lives, to run our lives in our own way, not surrender them completely to Christ. We are far more naturally inclined to hate our enemies than to love them. It seems so much more natural in every area to seek to have things on our own terms, 
do we really need to do everything Jesus tells us? Do we really need to get baptized? Do we really need to be so concerned about how we bring up our children? Do we really need to read the word, to pray, and to take the church so seriously? Yes. Here is a rule in the text which servants of Christ must follow completely. As Mary said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Though it might, might make no sense to you in the moment, though it may go against what the rest of the culture is doing and thinking, though it might even bring the mockery of the world, though it may seem and may really require a lot of work, difficult work, at times frustrating work. Though it be difficult, we, the servants of Christ, must do whatever Christ tells us. Can you truly call yourself a follower of Christ, a disciple of Christ, if you are going your own way? Can you truly call him Lord and Master if you are deliberately ignoring some of his instructions and commands? If you would claim the name of Christ, you must obey the voice of your Lord. For he not only deserves your allegiance as your maker, as your savior and redeemer, but we must also trust that as God, he knows what he's doing. Right? The purpose of the strange and fairly labor-intensive assignment of filling the jars with water soon became clear. Jesus turned that water into wine. So also the wisdom of God in all of his commands will be vindicated. We must trust that God's ways are the best ways. The commands he gives will always prove to be the best for us in the end. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. The Lord knows what he's doing now as well as then when Jesus turned the water into wine. And that brings us to another uh, possible objection from our text. Now we have six jars containing 20 to 30 gallons each. And so this means, if I did my math right, that Jesus made 120 to 180 gallons of wine, which he gave to wedding guests who had already consumed all of the wine at this wedding. Did Jesus sin by doing this? Can any charge of wrongdoing be appropriately leveled at Jesus here from this text? I mean, after all, Scripture does, in no uncertain terms, prohibit drunkenness. It forbids drunkenness. We've already seen the text from Ephesians 5, do not get drunk on wine. Uh, do not be drunk. Scripture commands sober-mindedness. And as we'll see, this is not an isolated text, but rather Scripture repeatedly warns us 
of the dangers of overindulging in alcohol. Wine is a mocker and strong drink a brawler. And whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Proverbs 20 verse 1. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine. Those who go to try mixed wine. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent. It stings like an adder. Proverbs 23, 29 to 32. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Proverbs 31, 4 and 5. So with all these warnings, what are we to make of Jesus providing copious amounts of wine to these wedding guests? Is Jesus guilty of wrongdoing? Well, firstly, I hope that that very suggestion is repulsive to you. If Jesus ever sinned, then we are in very serious trouble. Since it is only through his righteousness that we will be made acceptable before God. And scripture is very, very clear that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. Hebrews 4 verse 15 says that Christ, our high priest, in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So number one, right from the outset, we must affirm the absolute perfection and sinlessness of Christ. This is a core Christian doctrine. The gospel depends upon it. Our salvation depends upon it. And scripture is absolutely clear on this topic. Secondly, going to this text, what we find is that there's actually nothing in this text itself that can be used in order to accuse Christ of wrongdoing. Firstly, we cannot assume that everyone at the wedding was drunk already. We're not told how much wine the bridegroom had in, to begin with. We're also not told how many guests were there. And we're also not told how far into the wedding celebration this was. D.A. Carson notes that a Jewish wedding celebration could last as long as a week. And so it's entirely possible that there was not nearly enough wine for the large number of guests. It's also possible that it was already day three of the feast and that the wine consumption had been spread out over the past, past three days. Uh, there are many possible scenarios. Secondly, Jesus simply providing more wine does not force anyone to overindulge. And even if someone drank too much, this still wouldn't make Jesus guilty of wrongdoing. In the same way that if you made a pan of delicious brownies, you are not guilty of sin if one of your guests gluttonously devours too many of them. So to summarize, Scripture is abundantly clear about the sinlessness of Christ, and there is nothing in this passage that can be used to bring a charge of wrongdoing. <clears throat> Let's continue on. 
When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. So the master of the feast, the MC or the host of the feast, tastes this wine that Jesus made, and not knowing where it came from, he calls to the groom and says, man, you've been holding out on us. Right? Most people serve the good stuff first and then bring out the cheap stuff once everyone has had their fill. But you have saved the best for last. Now the fact was the bridegroom had not been holding out on them. The wine that they had consumed was in fact the best and apparently the only wine that he had. But the wine that Jesus provided and provided abundantly was so good that it made the previous wine seem like cheap wine in comparison. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. So John calls this miracle the first sign that Jesus performed. This display of power was not simply Jesus doing a parlor trick for entertainment's sake, nor was Jesus simply meeting a practical need. John calls it a sign. What does a sign do? A sign points to something else. This sign pointed to something deeper. It manifested Christ's glory. Now, to manifest means to show something, to put it on display, uh, to make it obvious or visible. Jesus was fully human, but he was no ordinary man. Rather, he was and is God the Son, having taken on flesh and dwelt among his people. And so here now was the first sign that Jesus performed, which John says manifested his glory, put his glory on display, and his disciples believed in him. So the disciples, seeing the display of power in this sign, perceived by faith the glory of Jesus, and they put their faith in him. They believed in him. And John gives us the reason that he wrote down all of these signs. In John 20, verse 30, the end of his gospel, John says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So notice John tells us the reason he wrote his whole book, and particularly the reason why he wrote about the signs Jesus performed, is this. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Anointed One, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life 
in his name. Jesus is the Messiah. The signs he performed manifested his identity. And that brings us to our final question for this morning, and that is, what meaning is there in this sign? We can see the meaning fairly easily in some of the other signs in John, right? Christ multiplies the loaves, and then he declares that he is the true bread of life. We don't have a discussion like this one following this sign. And so we ask, is there meaning in this sign aside from simply showing the power of Christ? I believe there is. And to understand it, we need to zoom out and see how the Bible as a whole speaks of wine. Now, Scripture speaks of alcohol and particularly wine as a blessing. It is, as we've seen, a potentially dangerous uh, blessing, and it can be easily abused, which is why we saw the many warning passages. But it is a blessing nonetheless, one that takes on symbolic meaning in the scriptures. Psalm 104, 14 to 15, praises the Lord for his provision and blessings and says, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. We see these same elements are the blessings that were encouraged to enjoy by the teacher in Ecclesiastes. He writes there, Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Ecclesiastes 9, 7, and 8. We see in the law that God even allowed Israel to use part of their tithe to buy ingredients for a feast, which they were to then enjoy in his presence. Deuteronomy 14, verse 26, God says, And spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep, or wine, or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves. And you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. So wine and strong drink, while potentially dangerous if abused, they are still presented as blessings in Scripture. A few more examples. Melchizedek brought out bread and wine as part of his blessing of Abraham, Genesis 14, 18. Isaac's blessing of Jacob included a petition uh, for an abundance of grain and wine, Genesis 27, 28. God gave the Levites, uh, the priestly class, the best of Israel's wine as a blessing for their service, Numbers 18, verse 12. And we also see that wine is one of the commonly mentioned covenant blessings that God promised to Israel if they would be faithful Deuteronomy 7, 12 to 13 says this, And because you listen to these rules and keep them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil, and the increase of your herds and the young of your flock, in the land that he swore to your fathers to give you. 
So notice that wine is presented among the covenant blessings that God would grant to his people. The promised land itself was described by Moses as a land of grain and wine whose heavens drop down dew. Deuteronomy 33, 28. And then we see in contrast that lacking wine was a curse that Israel could expect if they would be unfaithful to the Lord. Deuteronomy 28, 39. So notice we, we get this picture that wine is presented as a blessing, one that is associated with feasting and rejoicing before the Lord and having the Lord's favor as covenant keepers. To then trace this theme to its next stage in redemptive history, we see through the prophets that the age of the Messiah was prophesied to be a time when wine would flow liberally. Amos 9, 13 and 14 says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, he who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. So we see wine functions as a symbol of blessing, feasting, rejoicing, abundance, and the favor of the Lord. The time of the Messiah was prophesied to be a time of abundant blessings, such that the hills are flowing with wine, the favor of the Lord toward his people, flowing down in an unprecedented manner. And so the picture begins to come into focus. For in this event, at the wedding in Cana, Jesus, the prophesied Messiah, at a wedding feast provides wine and provides it in abundance. In a beautiful irony, he used jars that were formerly used for ceremonial cleansing, and he filled them to the brim with wine which was a symbol of God's blessing and favor, and of course was later an element that Jesus would use to represent his blood, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. It is not water and ceremonial washings or purification rites that will be able to cleanse us in the sight of God. It is only the blood of Christ shed for his people. The blood of Jesus cleanses us. Those whose robes have been washed in the blood of Christ are made sparkling white. Now kids, this of course is all a metaphor. There is no literal fountain of blood that you can go and, and wash yourself in. Um, but to put this idea simply, what we understand here is that we are all sinners by nature. We have all done bad things. We have done evil things, and our sin has tainted us. We have been stained by our sin. And so we need to be cleansed. And the blood of Christ is what washes us white as snow. And what that means is that it is only through the sacrifice of Jesus that we can be forgiven. Jesus took the wrath of God against the sin of his people when he died on the cross. To all who come to Christ in faith, to those who, like his disciples in this text, believe in him, 
Those who trust his promise of forgiveness, we will be granted eternal life. Your sins will be forgiven. However dirty our garments may have been, however filthy our sin had made us, the blood of Christ cleanses us from every stain. So we see that it does what the ceremonial washing never could. It purifies us in the sight of God. Jesus is the Messiah. We who are united to him by faith receive the covenant blessings that he purchased. So follow this here. If wine was given by God as a blessing for covenant obedience and thus was a sign of his favor, then we now live in the era of the hills flowing down with sweet wine. For we are recipients of the grace of Christ offered freely, pouring down on us in abundance. As Christ provided an abundance of wine at the wedding in Cana, so too we live our lives with God's favor pouring out in abundance on us through Christ. While we do not have a guarantee of literal earthly prosperity for all Christians in this life, we do have the promise and the guarantee of the eternal favor of God. All the blessings of the new covenant are yours through Christ who purchased them for you. If you are in Christ, brothers and sisters, God is pleased with you. You have his favor. For your mediator bears all your iniquity. While it is true that we come with polluted garments, Christ washes us white as snow. While it's true that even the good deeds, right, the worship, the service we would bring to God, are tainted by our mixed motives and by the sin in our hearts, nevertheless, this service and worship is acceptable to God because they are produced in us by his Spirit and is offered to him through Christ, who bears all our iniquity. If you are in Christ, you are the recipient of God's overwhelming favor, sweet wine flowing down the mountains, for Christ has purchased the blessings of the new covenant for you, and they are given freely as gifts of grace. We do not have a guarantee of literal earthly prosperity, but all the blessings are ours through Christ. What are these blessings? The forgiveness of sins, the righteousness of Christ credited to your account, adoption as sons, God's own spirit to indwell you and sanctify you, promises of ever-arriving grace sufficient to carry you through your every trouble, the guarantee that no matter what happens, God is working all things together for your good and his glory. And of course, at the heart of it all, perhaps, the promise that for Christians, the best is yet to come. Isaiah 25, verse 6, 
On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. You who are in Christ, the church of Jesus Christ, our bridegroom is saving the best for last. Though we do have a glorious gospel feast of God's grace, of which we may already partake in this life, I think the blessing of daily communion with him through his infallible, living, and active word, though we already have the overwhelming blessing of having access to his throne of grace through prayer, though we have the blessings of the church in which the word is explained, proclaimed, and applied to our hearts, where we receive the sacraments, baptism, and the Lord's Supper, having been received into the body and given the continual reminder of our participation in the body and blood of Christ. Though we have the blessing of the church in which we have sweet Christian fellowship with our fellow pilgrims, with whom we worship, pray, and build one another up by singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And though we have the many earthly blessings of God's common grace, marriage, sex, children, food, wine, comforts, and pleasures, as wonderful as all of the blessings of God are, these are merely appetizers. The church's bridegroom is keeping the best wine for last. Revelation 19, verse 6. <clears throat> then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. He said to me, these are the words of God. The Lord will make a feast for all peoples, a multitude from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation, a feast of rich food, of well-aged wine. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Christians, we shall feast together. We shall feast together as we experience the consummation of the kingdom when death is swallowed up forever and God wipes away every tear from every eye. The best is yet to come, for the day is coming when we will find ourselves in the presence of our Savior, having been counted righteous through his work alone, and our Savior will say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. 
The day is coming when we will be received into heaven as a son or daughter, having received all things as our inheritance, for we are fellow heirs with Christ. And the day is coming when we will be reunited with the loved ones we lost in Christ. You will see them again on streets of gold, shining like the sun. Pain, death, and suffering defeated forever. The day is coming when you will find that the light and momentary troubles that you faced on earth were in fact preparing for you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The best is yet to come. We will raise a glass and hail our King, give thanks to our Savior, bask forever in the favor of God, purchased by our bridegroom through his precious blood, which was poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Amen.